0: You know, one of my favorite expressions was always, during those periods, that uh, God gave us two ears and one mouth to be used in that proportion. Uh, And uh, and I think that was also a way of establishing good relationships. And finally, perhaps the most important factor is Monty Python. You have to appreciate the absurd to live in that political environment. And I do, and I did. So we need both technology and policy that spans the entire economy. And I think when all is said and done, the issue of putting a price on carbon emissions ultimately is the policy that I think is needed to stimulate economy-wide reductions.
1: Welcome to Straight Talk a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, Chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Ernie Manise. Ernie served as the 13th U.S. Secretary of Energy from 2013 to January 2017. As Secretary, he advanced energy technology innovation, nuclear security and strategic stability, cutting-edge capabilities for the American scientific research community and environmental stewardship. He was a key architect of the Paris Agreement as well as Iran nuclear agreement. Ernie was a member of the MIT faculty from 1973 until 2013 when he was appointed Secretary of Energy. Now he is a Cecil and Ida Green professor of physics and engineering systems emeritus at MIT as well as the special advisor to the MIT president. He is co-chairman of the board of directors and CEO of the Nuclear Threat Initiative. And he is CEO and founder of the Energy Futures Initiative. So Ernie, welcome to the podcast. I know of no one in the world who is better versed on the intersection of science, technology, climate, and energy policy and politics. As far as I'm concerned, you set the standard for excellence for a US Energy Secretary. So I'm really looking forward to today's discussion. Now, let's start at the beginning. You grew up in Fall River, Massachusetts, got your undergrad in physics from Boston College, and your PhD in theoretical physics from Stanford. You went on to become a renowned physicist and professor at MIT. Talk a bit about how you developed your interest and commitment to science. Where did this interest come from? What attracted you to climate science? Who were your mentors?
0: Hank, uh, let me first say that many of those uh, tuning in may not know that no Fall River, Massachusetts. And I'll just say that it's a very uh, old industrial town, uh, one of these many uh, towns, about 100,000 people, that frankly has been a little bit down and out for a long time. And that makes the story of how I got into science, I think, even a bit more remarkable in a sense. I'm a classic product of Sputnik because Sputnik, of course, led to the U.S. government really launching a revision of what we now call STEM education, the science and math education. And among those initiatives was something called PSSC Physics, the Physical Science Study Committee, which was out of MIT. And they uh, completely revolutionized how physics would be taught in high school. And very fortunately, in my high school, public high school, in this down and out old industrial town, the physics teacher was really courageous in my view. He, you know, he got an NSF grant uh, to go to Bowdoin College in the summer to learn how to teach this new physics. And when he came back, I was in that class uh, that got to experience it. It was a revolution with uh, experiments as well as an enormous number of problems to be solved. I mean, bottom line is that mentorship right there is what changed my uh, life in the sense that I knew then physics was it. And um, I've never wavered since that time. But in terms of the mentorship, then I went to uh, Boston College, as you mentioned. And there, a physics professor, uh, Joe Chen, who was a material scientist, took me under his wing and was extraordinary. Didn't have a lot of money, so we scrambled together an electron spin resonance device that was within an order of magnitude of the state of the art and did some great experiments as an undergraduate before going on to Stanford, where, again, a great mentor, Dirk Vileczka, was my advisor. In terms of climate... What really happened then, and I'm sure we'll come back to this, is after about 25 years uh, as a theoretical physicist at uh, MIT, came the call to go to government. And uh, in the second of those calls, I became the undersecretary of the Department of Energy, finishing out the Clinton years as president. And when I came back to MIT, that experience led me to think that I was going to take the big leap no longer go back to physics research, but in fact, to start to build a clean energy program at MIT in response to climate.
1: And boy, I'll tell you what a difference that has made. But uh, I want to talk a little bit more about your development because you know you are a terrific nuclear physicist, a terrific climate scientist, but there's nothing nerdy about you. You're a people person with great communication skills. How did these skills develop?
0: I have no idea. Uh, (laughs) However, I think, you know, when I was in government, I think it's fair to say that I had really exceptional relationships, for example, in Congress, across the aisle, in times of great political polarization. And I think, relevant to your question, I would put three factors uh, forward. One, the name of your podcast is very appropriate, Straight Talk. Democrats, Republicans, straight talk built upon kind of science and data, I think was very, very well appreciated. Secondly, I have to admit, and and this may be kind of a revelation, uh, almost unwelcome to many of my friends in science and in politics, I kind of like genuinely enjoy talking uh, with with the members, with other stakeholders, including those with whom I disagree on, on many policy issues. You know, one of my favorite expressions was always during those periods that uh, God gave us two ears and one mouth to be used in that proportion. Uh, and uh, and I think that was also a way of establishing good relationships. And finally, perhaps the most important factor is Monty Python. You have to appreciate the absurd to live in that political environment. And I do, and I did.
1: Well, well Ernie, the reason I said you set the standard for Energy Secretary, is I've watched people, I've watched outstanding business leaders come to Washington, outstanding people with great science credentials come to Washington and not be very effective because it's all about people skills, it's all about listening, it's all about finding common ground. And so to me, you know, you've got a big brain, but you're able to work with people. And I think that makes
0: a big difference. So let's talk about... Could I just add in there, Hank, before I'm moving on, just to say that, I mean, first of all, I think all the skills you talk about are the right ones for getting something done in Washington. But I would add uh, to that explicitly, those relationships that I mentioned uh, with members of Congress and the like, what's so important is to establish the relationship before you have a problem. Uh, That's the worst time to have to go to somebody for the first time.
1: Absolutely, I've always said, I was there during the financial crisis. And I said, thank goodness I had a year before the financial crisis. Mm -hmm. A year to work with Democrats and Republicans and get some important things done and establish a working relationship and a year to build a relationship with the president. So you need that, right? Yep. And the credibility comes from working together to get things done. So now you serve three tours of duty in Washington, and you've talked about it, you know, in the Clinton administration, of course, Energy Secretary under Obama. What inspired your
0: move from academia to government? What led you to take that step? Well, first of all, I want to emphasize uh, it's not from, it's to and fro, uh, yeah. You really have to uh, take, take a little rest in between those government stints. But uh, first of all, something that I think is very important and I say to students a lot is if opportunity comes, be prepared to take risks. And I would say, especially the first time going to D.C., it was a bit of a risk in terms of the academic trajectory. And, and of course, as I've already said, it proved to be a risk in the sense that it led to a change of direction after my second uh, uh, stint in the government but a change of direction that I certainly don't regret quite the contrary I think it led me to some very important uh, important challenges to do and so in the end the answer to your question is challenge opportunity to serve I have to say it sounds corny but I still think there is no higher calling if you like than doing public service especially when you have the conditions to succeed uh, and to get something done and I think I felt that uh, in all three of my wanderings to D.C. that we had the chance to achieve some pretty significant uh, goals.
1: You sure did. You had the opportunity and you had some great success. So I want to talk now about climate. And so talk about the climate challenge. What drove you to deal with that formidable, you know, inevitable risk that we're all facing? Talk about that. And I'd like you also to tell us about this Energy Futures Initiative and your theory of change and how you're making it happen right now.
0: Well, when I was at both the uh, Office of Science and Technology Policy and at the Department of Energy, that I think any scientist looking seriously at the information and the analysis that was emerging in the 1990s could see kind of the looming train wreck of climate change if it wasn't addressed uh, aggressively. And then being at the Department of Energy uh, in particular, certainly I felt that while business model innovation and policy innovation were critically important, in the end, I felt that technology innovation was an absolutely necessary arena in which to make enormous progress. And the Department of Energy is not well-recognized for what it is, a sometimes we call it facetiously uh, the Department of Weapons and Windmills, Quarks and Quagmires, uh, nuclear weapons, uh, clean energy technology, fundamental science, Quarks, and cleaning up the mess of the Cold War, the Quagmires. It sounds like very, very different missions, but the thread in all of them is applying cutting-edge science and technology to address those missions. So, you know, it was a natural, Um, I'm obviously as a physicist in a senior position at the Department of Energy as undersecretary, having the incredible assets of the department, including the 17 national laboratories. And one could see that that was such a critical area to uh, really accelerate climate, climate solutions. And indeed, as I mentioned, when I went back to MIT, that's why I just kind of had a continuation play into establishing the MIT Energy Initiative, really focusing on technology innovation, while still recognizing that again, policy innovation and business model innovation would be highly complementary to those technologies.
1: And what I really like about what you're doing is you've got the science and the cutting edge, but you work closely with business because so much of this is gonna be done through business. And so there's there's just a natural fit there. And I think it's very, uh, very
0: important. On on that, uh, Hank, let me just add that I think, you know, the energy initiative that we started in 2006 formally has become, and is still going very, very strong, very, very wide, broad initiative. What I would emphasize is we had two great advantages in establishing this kind of initiative at MIT. One is that MIT arguably has been in the lead for a long, long time since World War II in terms of multidisciplinary work, very, very critical in the energy area. And secondly, MIT's charter from the 19th century has got business in its DNA, and that in contrast to many educational institutions, it's changing now. But very early on, MIT always viewed working with the private sector as core to its mission.
1: Yep critically important. Now, Ernie, I want to talk about some of the technological pathways for averting climate disaster. No one better to talk about them than you. You've done a lot of work on carbon capture. Explain what the technology is, why it is needed, and what
0: needs to be done. So carbon capture, first of all, let me say, has got to be part of a serious climate solution but I want to emphasize carbon capture in two different modes. One is capturing CO2 before it gets into the atmosphere, let's say from power plants, uh, from industrial facilities and the like. But secondly, also capturing carbon dioxide that's already in the atmosphere and getting it out. And then in both cases, one way or another, storing it, sequestering it, fixing it, permanently, let's say permanently in quotes, that's CCUS. Now, from power plants or industrial facilities, you have relatively concentrated amounts of carbon dioxide in the flue gas, for example, in the effluent. So there are many technologies uh, involving solvents, for example, that capture the CO2 from which one then liberates the CO2, compresses it, and puts it underground, let's say. And that's the approach that's used for these major sources, again, like power plants or industrial facilities. The capturing it out of the atmosphere offers many other pathways. There is the so-called direct air capture, in which you do essentially the same thing that I already described, except that you're working with a much more dilute source of CO2. Uh, As we know, over 400 parts per million but that's parts per million, not 10% or 15% or uh, sometimes higher. So there, there are additional pathways. There are natural pathways, planting trees. There are technology-enhanced natural pathways. For example, breeding new plants with very, very deep root systems that fix a lot more CO2, like accelerating mineralization capturing CO2, putting it underground into basalt formations where it becomes mineralized and again permanently stored. So there's many, many different pathways. The latter, the capturing the CO2 out of the atmosphere, what's critical is that these are negative carbon technologies. It takes CO2 literally out of the air and sequesters it permanently. We need negative carbon technologies in spades for two reasons. One is when we say net zero, we should acknowledge the net means both positive and negative carbon technologies are in play. But secondly, let's assume we do reach net zero emissions by mid-century. Beyond that, we will want economy-wide net negative emissions literally lowering the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. And that means by definition that these negative carbon technologies have gotta be innovated really hard starting now. We advocate, for example, uh, about a $10 billion RD&D program in this decade to get the portfolio of carbon dioxide removal technologies ready to scale by the end of this decade.
1: Yeah. Ernie, to say it really simply, everything we're doing is not going to be enough to meet even the voluntary targets that has been set by Paris. And so to avert disaster, we're going to need to remove the carbon dioxide that's already in the atmosphere.
0: Right. right? Yeah, exactly. So this, this is this is the, the, the relic CO2.
1: The relic CO2. So direct air capture. And... Right now, a lot more needs to be done, right, in terms of to bring the cost down and develop these technologies.
0: Correct. The direct air capture costs, people will argue whether it's $500 or $1,000 a ton right now, long way to go to bring that down. But I do want to emphasize that a lot of the other pathways that are given less attention, as I mentioned, the terrestrial approaches, the mineralization approaches, uh, right now, we think those can be done. Uh, at significantly lower cost per ton of CO2. And that's good news.
1: Now, I want to switch and talk about something that you don't hear a lot about today, but the role of nuclear power, both fission and fusion. So how do you weigh the risks and benefits of nuclear, and how essential is it that we develop more nuclear power generation?
0: Well, first of all, in both nuclear fission and nuclear fusion, we are in a period of unprecedented innovation. There simply has never been the pursuit of so many alternatives as we are seeing today, and often in both fission and fusion, with considerable private capital driving that innovation even more than the federal government. And so
1: I get asked all the time by people, how important is nuclear power? to mitigating the climate problem and
0: your view is it's very important right it's very it's very important Uh, again if we take the United States where we have roughly 20 percent of our electricity from nuclear power we can ask the question the other way (laughs) imagine we now lost that 20 percent and had to make that up in addition to decarbonizing the rest of the sector the opposite, in my view, uh, is the desirable end state in which we actually increase the nuclear fraction, complementing the variable resources like solar and wind with a steady dispatchable nuclear energy. And then I would add, because you mentioned earlier also fusion. Now, uh, first of all, again, we all know the old joke about fusion is always pick your number 30 or 40 years away. That's changed. What we are seeing again is tremendous innovation in which uh, alternative concepts are being developed and are looking extremely promising to demonstrate the fusion requirements in this decade. Now, I'm not guaranteeing it will be a positive result. I'm very optimistic. It's It's looking very, very good. And the important point here is that a fusion reactor has neither of the possible issues associated with fission reactors. One is the safety issue that you mentioned. There is no credible accident at a fusion plant that would put the public at risk. And secondly, you don't have the nuclear waste problem that you have with fission. If you remember fission, you split the heavy, uh, heavy nuclei, and those two big pieces that come out of it are themselves quite radioactive. Whereas with fusion, you merge light nuclei into heavier nuclei and there is no radioactive product. So this could have enormous implications, including very pragmatic things that are often not thought about. For example, if you had fusion without any public safety risks, you can site that reactor essentially anywhere, including where there are currently Electricity plants with all of their hookups to transmission and the like. So it would be a complete game changer if fusion can be integrated into the commercial electricity system.
1: Yeah. And in terms of nuclear waste, if there was one major burden that every energy secretary had to deal with, which was the nuclear waste storage issue. Correct. So just mention quickly or what are some of the under-discussed or under-appreciated technological breakthroughs that still need to be developed, but are promising?
0: Well, okay. A couple of, a couple of game changers. One is storage. Now storage is often immediately equated to batteries. Now batteries are very important, but storage is a much broader set of technologies. And in fact, For the electricity system, of course, batteries are critical for transportation as well. But for the electricity system, in my view, batteries will continue to be deployed more and more. Costs will drop even more. However, I believe they will always solve only the intraday storage challenge. If we're going to have a system, and I think we will have a system, with a dramatically increased amount of wind and solar, we are going to need storage of long duration, days, weeks, maybe even seasonal. And so we have a long way to go. Uh, we have some technologies like pumped hydro, you know, pump water uh, up a hill and then release it down the hill when you want some, uh, want some juice, new kinds of batteries, so-called flow batteries, et cetera, compressed air storage, but even these are typically maybe on the day or two-day time frame. We still need something longer term. And when I say something longer term, I'll be a little bit simple, but I go to, my, to the second area of breakthrough. We need a fuel. I think we often don't, you know, kind of put two and two together and realize the way we really store a lot of energy for all kinds of time frames is called fuel. It's easy to put, you know, petroleum fuel into a tank and store huge amounts of energy. But now what we need is a low to no carbon fuel that can be deployed at large scale. And that can solve all kinds of issues in the transportation sector, for the long duration storage, for industrial fuels, for example, for very high temperature process heat, for replacing jet fuel, for aircraft. Uh, For uh, those big container ships, uh, the kind that we saw uh, wedged across the Suez Canal uh, some time ago. Uh, Now, there are many approaches to that low-carbon fuel. Right now, the one that's certainly in the lead, maybe coming into the stretch turn, is hydrogen. Uh, Hydrogen can play the role of natural gas, for example, in so many different sectors and contexts. We know how to make it. We don't know how to make it yet inexpensively enough. We don't know yet what the infrastructure will look like, but a lot of attention being given to this. And I am hoping that we will see expansion, significant expansion of the hydrogen market in this decade, preparing us for a future in which essentially zero carbon electricity and zero carbon fuels will combine to support the entire economy, complemented by things like those carbon dioxide removal, negative carbon technologies, we can envision that as an integrated, coherent system to achieve uh, all of our goals and meet our needs.
1: So Ernie, I think you've probably answered this question already, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What climate policies need to be prioritized in the U.S.? If you had a trillion dollars to spend on climate, how would
0: you spend it? Well, first of all, the, the lead horse in decarbonization, I think everyone uh, pretty much agrees, is decarbonizing electricity. And that's the lead horse. And there are many policies there. Today, for example, the administration and the Congress have a favored approach called a clean energy standard. That would work much like the renewable electricity standards that we see in many states, except it would expand it to other kinds of zero-carbon technologies. However, what I want to emphasize is, look, today, electricity accounts for 27% of U.S. emissions. So while it's the lead horse There's a lot of of other horses in that race. There's like 73% remaining for emissions from transportation and buildings and industry and agriculture and the like. So we need both technology and policy that spans the entire economy. And I think when all is said and done, the issue of putting a price on carbon emissions ultimately is the policy that I think is needed to stimulate economy-wide reductions. So by the way, that you know, when you talk about a carbon price, let's say at $100 a ton, just to pick a round number, for the United States alone, one is getting to the better part of a trillion dollars. So your trillion dollar statement is kind of the right scale to be talking about in terms of decarbonizing the economy. And you and
1: I both agree on putting a price on carbon. I think
0: that is key. And and furthermore, uh, Hank, I think I would just add, I think we'll agree on this as well, is that it's really important, and I wouldn't want to skip over this, that moving towards a price on carbon, uh, we agree, uh, is critical, but it's got to also be done in a socially progressive way. We cannot have this as an additional burden on the poorest in in our society.
1: Amen, for sure. So how do you assess the Biden administration's efforts so far in addressing climate change?
0: Well, I think the administration is really walking the talk in terms of uh, moving aggressively. Now, let's talk about how far that might go. But first, I'd like to actually dial back to 2020 and the campaign, because I think a very important feature of 2020, not often enough acknowledged, is that the Biden campaign Clearly, made the decision the first time in a presidential campaign, made the decision that climate was a politically winning argument. That's a profound change, in particular because it proved correct. So it suggests that, you know, the public really is ready to start moving on these issues, that there are a lot of concerns still about dislocations in various industries and various communities, but that fundamentally the public is there to move forward. Industry has been there now for a while. Uh, A lot of states are, are there and cities. So I believe the opportunity for the Biden administration to build coalitions that can politically and practically move the ball forward is quite real. Now, I'm not going to be Pollyannish and say this is all going to be easy, and we will see how things like uh, infrastructure packages, et cetera, move forward. However, the administration on its own, of course, has and will take a lot of executive actions. I'll just mention a couple. Well, one is the Department of Energy, frankly, in the Obama administration, aggressively put out efficiency standards for a whole range of technologies non-trivial, cumulatively accounting for over half a trillion dollars of consumer energy savings and somewhere around two and a half gigatons of CO2 emissions avoided. Frankly, in the last administration, that all fell flat on its face. Now we will see through executive action, those kinds of efficiency standards revived. I'll just mention one more, going more to the financial world, your world. I think it's very, very clear that regulatory institutions like the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, are clearly going to up the standards for corporate climate risk disclosure. And Gary Gensler, a lecturer at the MIT Sloan School, I might add, who is now the chairman of the SEC, there's no doubt in my mind that Gary and the SEC will pursue that as an executive action. So legislatively, it will remain in play as to how much bipartisanship we can generate, but uh, we will see continuing uh, very, very strong executive action.
1: So let's now talk about the, just very briefly about the carbon dioxide that's already there, right? So how do we prepare for the climate change that's already here? How do we make our economy more resilient to extreme weather shocks, like the Texas polar vortex from earlier this year? In practical terms, What will this mean in the decades ahead?
0: Well, as you say, Hank, the Texas uh, polar vortex events certainly show the importance of addressing uh, resilience against the new risks as being critical. But I'd like to just emphasize that we have Texas big chills. We have California heat waves of uh, rolling blackouts of last summer. We have cybersecurity threats like the Colonial Pipeline kind of semi-disaster at least. And so it's both climate threats and other threats like cyber that needs to have us take a integrated view, coherent view of building a 21st century infrastructure that will enable 21st century opportunities. For example, the integration, the full integration of the electricity grid with information technologies and artificial intelligence will present new consumer service opportunities as we build that 21st century grid that also allows distributed generation and the like. But at the same time, uh, and it's sometimes intention, at the same time, having that infrastructure broadly, including the grid, be resilient against the new climate risks and the new cyber risks. So on the climate risks, There is no doubt that we have to learn a lot more about the fat tails of the uh, distribution of risks that global warming and climate change uh, present. Frankly, we need a lot of basic research to understand how to quantitatively address those risks. But in the meantime, we can't just sit back, and I'm sorry to say, the way Texas did. Texas, after all, had a pretty big chill in 2011. There were recommendations made about enhancing the resilience of the grid, and frankly, we all know most of those recommendations were just put aside and not followed. This was a lesson about what the costs of that are, and we need that infrastructure push now. I mentioned already that we see the administration and the Congress negotiating over infrastructure. I'm not going to, you know, prejudge the outcomes, but I would just say One very important point is, whatever they do, they cannot simply revert to rebuilding 50-year-old infrastructure in the same way. Roads, bridges, ports, etc. We need to do that, but we also need to build the infrastructure for, in Wayne Gretzky's words, where the puck is going to be. And where it's going to be is a low-carbon economy. It's going to have to have these transactional Electricity grids, etc. That's the kind of infrastructure that we need to be uh, to be building right now to accelerate the transition that we need uh, in the energy sector. And it has to be
1: resilient to the kinds of weather shocks, energy shocks that yeah. we're going to see. Whether, yeah, it's,
0: it's cold. It's heat. You know,
1: yeah. rebuilding New Orleans, just where the disaster occurred. That kind of thing. Right. Now let's go global. You were a key architect of the Paris Agreement, which, you know, fortunately, the Biden administration has rejoined. Remind our listeners about the scope and the importance of the Paris Agreement, and then I'd like to talk about the limitations for a minute.
0: Sure. Let me give you my very brief history of climate meetings. Uh, Of course, we have first, we have Rio de Janeiro, 30 years ago, where the uh, the The risk was understood. And by the way, it's interesting to point out that the United States actually has ratified a treaty committing it to address climate change and the anthropogenic drivers. That was That was the Rio Treaty. Of course, it did not set specific goals. Then we have Kyoto, in which I have to say, unfortunately, a sharp line was drawn between those countries' that were committed to doing something about climate and those that were not. Then came Copenhagen, the much maligned Copenhagen, which I claim was very important in eliminating that notion that only a subset of countries would have the major responsibility. And that brings us to Paris. I believe the most important part of the Paris Agreement was the fact that every country on Earth basically agreed that it had some responsibility for addressing climate. Then it did two other things in Paris. One was the beginnings of commitments, near ter- relatively near-term commitments at reductions of either levels of emission or intensity of emissions. And third, and often forgotten, at Paris, there was also an agreement called Mission Innovation that advanced the idea of serious increase in uh, clean energy and R&D investments, and in international collaboration to get there. Now, uh, this is not history yet, but my hope is that this cycle will be completed in Glasgow by now having Glasgow up the ambition of Paris, uh, still with all countries basically participating. So that, that to me is, I hope, will be the arc from Rio to Glasgow.
1: And so that's the half full story. And I think it's, you know, I think we both understand that as important as these voluntary commitments are, we're not on a path to meet them. And even if we meet them, the world is still going to overheat. So is it possible to design a governance structure that deals squarely with the problem of free riding and have some real incentives to curb emissions? How can we accelerate Climate progress in the developing world and in other major economies.
0: Well, of course, there are what are viewed by some as relatively coercive approaches to addressing the free rider issue. For example, I think something that you've looked into, Hank, uh, carbon border adjustments. So the idea of having uh, essentially tariffs at borders that kind of uh, uh, equalize commitments to to carbon reduction. Now uh, that. Uh, uh, that is easier said than done for two reasons. One is that, first of all, it's extremely difficult to quantitatively evaluate the carbon content, especially in a world where supply chains go back and forth across borders and all kinds of issues. So I think we are only at the beginning of understanding how that could be credibly uh, done. Nevertheless, it may start to be done. But there, the the second issue is that I think we have a lot to do in terms of differentiation. Frankly, I don't think we can be serious about putting tariffs, for example, on the exports from the least developed countries. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, And we have to realize that more broadly, first of all, reaching the aggressive climate goals like net zero by mid-century is going to have to come at different timeframes for different levels of development. So we have a lot of serious analytical work to do and a lot of serious political work to do to understand how these come together in a coherent way.
1: Yeah. And I, I think the good news, if there is any good news, is if you focus on the major economies, right? you focus on 18 or 20 major economies, which is something that the Bush administration did for the first time, and then the Obama administration picked it up. I think if you focus on those, I think you're going to largely solve the problem or make a lot of progress. And well, so- yeah, the,
0: the majority of emissions come from the order of 20 countries. Yeah. And, and so we have to go there. And frankly, I don't know how you feel about this, but my view is that for the least developed countries, Sure, we, we like to see their development as sustainable as possible, but I believe what they believe, and that is when all is said and done, their number one priority is on the development. And frankly, it's that development which has so many implications, like empowering women in the economy, that that development will make them the best partners in the future for lowering carbon emissions. Yeah.
1: So Ernie, give us the case for climate optimism.
0: Well, first of all, the word optimism almost immediately drives me to the word technology. I think uh, there's no doubt that I am a technology optimist. And I, I do believe that the tools that we need at appropriate cost will be developed. And by the way, in the United States, I would say that it was demonstrated dramatically during the Trump administration that there is a bipartisan consensus on moving forward the innovation agenda. I say that because the Congress always overrode the administration requests to reduce those budgets and, frankly, increase them quite nicely. So I believe that we have reason to be optimistic on the technology side. I think we have reason to be optimistic that business will continue to see Low carbon as the inevitable place to go, that they will make especially long wavelength investments of capital in ways that align with that, and business model innovation will continue. Frankly, the place where it's a little bit harder to make that argument is the policy and political innovation that we need on the time scale that we need it. I just hope this is not again another case where we will react after the fact. When we see that the costs of inaction are becoming so intolerable that we have to do something as opposed to doing it now, seizing the opportunity, seeing that if we make this decade, the decade of supercharged innovation, we'll have a lot of tools at our disposal by 2030 to take that last run towards net zero over the next two decades.
1: We sure will. Now, Ernie... You and I share a common hobby, fly fishing. Have you always been a fisherman?
0: Well, back in Fall River, when I was a child, I used to go a lot with my grandfather uh, down to the river, the Taunton River. It's a big river, actually. Do some fishing, you know, spinners, et cetera. But really the change came when I was undersecretary of the Department of Energy uh, about 25 years ago, when I visited a friend uh, out west in Colorado and learned fly fishing. And I learned then... Uh, I, I might say that being undersecretary of energy was an incredible preparation for becoming secretary of energy. In the same way, learning fly fishing as undersecretary was great preparation for becoming secretary, because the only time I forgot all the excuse the term damn things going on at DOE was standing in that river and <laughs> trying to outsmart a trout. <laughs> I
1: tell you, that's what I love about it too. It's just totally and completely relaxing. So whether it's either trying to outsmart a trout in a river or throwing a fly in front of a tarpon in the ocean takes a lot of concentration and totally takes your mind off other, other issues. So I'd like to end on a note of advice for young listeners you spend a lot of time on university campuses with young folks what advice do you give students and young people and what do you tell those who want to make a difference and join the fight against climate change
0: well okay uh, i'll say what i'm what i'll be saying uh, at a uh, commencement uh, this year number one is that the young people leaving their campuses with their earned degrees in contrast to those of us who get now only honorable degrees. First of all, I think what's really important is that they, with their civic responsibilities, do all that they can at least to restore facts to their proper place in political debate. Because we know that this uh, basically it appears that every version of the facts is available to everybody all the time with various media and i'm hoping in contrast to me that these young people can combine a commitment to a fact-based a science-based debate with understanding of all of the social media that uh, sometimes work against that that's number 1 number 2 is that i would emphasize that in something like trying to advance our climate change solutions with social equity, that every discipline written on every one of those earned diplomas is part of the fight against climate change with social equity there, uh, that it's not just a question of technology and scientists and engineers. It's really every discipline that can contribute. Now, we don't expect all of them to be directly engaged, but I think a lot of them will be. They will have to be to face up to the scale of this, of, of this challenge. So uh, I think it's really important that, again, these young people across the board with their earned <laughs> earned disciplines contributing.
1: And Ernie, when I'm most optimistic, it's when I'm with young people on the campuses that care so much about these issues and are so committed.
0: And, so yeah, that's- and, and Hank, that's why I emphasized earlier that it wasn't from academia to government. It was to and fro, because yeah. you always got to go back to kind of reset Uh, rationality. And frankly, I think, uh, yeah, it's those young people who are the reason why I at least have been tethered to an academic life, occasionally interrupted by the hand-to-hand combat of the political world.
1: Well, Ernie, let me tell you, this has been terrific. Your energy and enthusiasm for technology, innovation, and your work is palpable. And we all are very fortunate that you're channeling that energy into solutions for mitigating climate change. So thank you for being with us today.
0: Well, thank you, Hank. And I look forward to working with you on on our shared objectives.
1: Great. Thank you.
0: You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.